0: Hi, and welcome to the latest Beaver Pod. Today we've got with us our regular Hugh Griffiths from Liphook, and uh, we're really pleased to have with us today Richard Newton from the Animal Health Trust. Hi, Richard.
1: Hi, David. Hi, Hugh.
0: Hi, Hugh.
1: Hi, David. Hi, Richard.
0: So if we start with a quick run through of parish news. Uh, Most talked about thing this week, I suspect, has been the neurological EHV-1 outbreaks in Hampshire. Uh, And Richard's here to talk to us a little bit about that later on. So we'll probably leave that there. Uh, In more positive news, Deirdre Carson, former Beaver president, has been appointed as a trustee of the Animal Welfare Foundation. So uh, good luck, Deirdre. I'm sure she'll do a great job there. The animal health trust has launched a new online strangles resource which gives some really good information um on an interactive site detailing latest outbreaks by region uh by type etc and that's a really interesting and and well worth a look uh the bha has uh put out a statement saying it's no longer advising against possession or use of injectable omeprazole in the racing industry um and finally this week we are launching our color-coded scheme to tackle equine obesity so that's a beaver pilot project and that'll be highlighted in horse and hound this week so um might be useful to you for you to know about in case your client's talking about it so richard top of the news this week as we've just mentioned has been uh the outbreak of neurological ehv1 um you've been at the center of that you've been at the center of most disease outbreaks over the last year um How's how did that progress from your perspective?
2: Okay, David. Yeah, well, um, sort of middle of last week, um, we became aware of um, uh, a case of neurological disease for which we'd been sent some samples to our diagnostic laboratories in at the AHT, and um, we those came back positive for um, equine herpes virus. And as we normally do, we will follow those up with the veterinary surgeon. Um, and then we, we sort of became aware of what the extent of that that, that problem was, um, the type of premise that was involved, which was um, obviously a, quite a busy equestrian centre down on the south coast of England. And I guess it became clear that with uh, that type of premise, with uh, multiple owners, multiple vets, um, that this was going to become something of a, of a challenge to uh, to sort out. We were also processing slightly unbeknownst to us at the time, but we'd had some samples from other horses on the premise and they returned positive samples as well. So there was sort of no doubt um, with respect to the diagnosis. And then obviously we had to turn our attention to um, helping uh, with the sort of control strategy and how we would would how we would do that. So we've been working with um, all of the veterinary practices concerned and. Um, and basically, we advise that the premise uh, effectively goes into lockdown, uh, no movements on or off. Um, and as we normally do, and we've, we've, we've learned this through experience, um, some fairly intensive blood sample testing, looking at antibodies and also looking at uh, nasopharyngeal swabs, looking for presence of virus, really just to get a handle on what's been going on uh, in the build-up the first cases being diagnosed and then what might be going on currently when when those swabs are taken so we do find that very useful uh in terms of getting a handle quite quickly on what this problem is and then we can take it from there in terms of the next steps um great so so probably
0: in the middle whilst all that was going on Hugh I know your your practice is pretty close to the action down there you presumably have been inundated
1: yeah, it's certainly taken over our lives for twenty twenty so far. Um, it, as Richard said, it's sort of it was it's a well known disease process. Um, we didn't expect it to to come onto our practice quite in the manner that it did. Um, it, it's no no secret that a, a patient was admitted to the hospital, who um, thankfully went straight into isolation, just to, due to the nature of the presentation, and then that animal was then subsequently sent home. Um, so the biggest challenge for us was very much communication and confidentiality at the same time. They're two very difficult things to, to marry up. We had several inpatients in a very busy hospital who had to be considered first and foremost. Um, and as Richard said, you know, the lockdown part is such a such a huge cornerstone of the, the way forward. And that involves a lot of people who are unbeknown to the situation and in their heads unrelated related to it. And, and then that in conjunction with a, a voluntary code of, of conduct then sort of necessitates a huge amount of communication. Absolutely.
0: So presumably it also creates quite a fair few challenges for you at the Animal Health Trust, Richard.
2: Yeah, we've had a, a few of those over the last 12 months. Um, volume's not so bad this time. Um, but actually what, what was the challenge for us was that we suddenly were getting lots of samples from lots of practices from lots of different owners and keeping track of those in terms of who was involved and who wasn't Uh, and that's where working with your colleagues in in, in practice is really important and um, you know I I should say that we've had excellent uh, you know working relationship with 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 the vets involved and, and and we're kind of working our way through it still but it I think it's working well but there are always always lessons as you go
0: and communication is a is a challenge isn't it presumably it's a challenge for you rich but you've touched on the the issues of communicating with clients generally Hugh
1: yeah I think for, I think for us the hardest thing was not wanting to say something that was going to change half an hour later so we we were a little bit slow is the wrong word but we were very considered in our initial statement because we had to consider all the all the impatience that needed communication with first and we we felt a need to communicate you know properly with all of those people and that took quite a long time to make sure that all of those people had been appropriately informed of what was going on so our initial statement was probably a day or two later than some people would have expected but equally everything's a moving feast and you don't want to don't want to make too many statements um and then moving forward uh, a second statement that we came out which was yesterday i felt that was very positive because as richard alluded to it involved quite a lot of the vets involved in the outbreak and i think for our membership and also for the public i think it is a good example of of team effort across practices and you know it was very nice to see that we could we could present that to the public obviously we've been talking in private amongst those that's a huge amount on top of that. But um, but I quite, you know, I like the fact that that statement was made.
0: Yeah, great. And uh, Richard, do you have a sort of standard protocol you go through when you have a disease outbreak in terms of communication? I know you've had lots of practice over the last 12 months.
2: Um, every, everyone's slightly, slightly different. And obviously you are, as Hugh as said, confidentiality in the early stages is very important. Um, but thankfully... I think the the equestrian centre concerned, uh, much to their credit, uh, saw the benefit of going public with this. So we weren't hiding, you know, trying to hide their name out of the public domain. Um, And then it it made life a lot a lot easier. So, yeah, that in terms of neurological EHV, there's not a great deal you can say early on, other than you've diagnosed it. You can say obviously what the extent of it is, but you're very much in a sort of waiting game. Because what you're trying to get to is that you're trying to get that premise or link premises back to normal activity. And what you're actually praying for is that you don't have too much activity. Um, and you've got periodic um, time during that where obviously there's a lot of veterinary activity, a lot of sampling of horses. Then you're waiting for laboratory results. Then you're collating them and you're, you're hoping that you're not going to find too much serious along the way. And that's kind of where we are now.
0: And that's a lockdown period is when everyone everyone's interested isn't it and the, i mean i th- i th- it feels like the social media activity on this has been uh, pretty busy and and at times perhaps less than informed
1: yeah I think that's a constant problem isn't it I think the the public are understandably interested and emotionally and financially invested in it and then when they're reading different things from from different sources. Um, confusion is 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 very easily acquired so with that in mind we we pretty much put a, a vet in the office non-stop since the beginning of this outbreak to to speak to our clients and just take time to explain the differences of or the explanations for the reasons of the approach if nothing else and the differences between the the different strains of, of the herpes virus so we didn't feel it was appropriate to to leave the the other staff in the practice to do that so we were you know we're quite pleased that we did that and that. Hopefully, it, it helped explain um, why we're taking the approach we were taking.
2: I think the other thing to say, David, is whilst it might be bread and butter to to me, and I've dealt with a few of these things over the years, um, you know, it's worth remembering to colleagues that, that that you know, to be fair to them, they're they're not used to necessarily to dealing with these things as frequently as it, we are, and therefore you have to help them along and you know, guide them in what what you're doing and remind them. Um, why you're doing it but as with all things you bring them along and they're they're part of the the grand communication with their clients and with 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 different stakeholders so you know it very much is a team effort
1: absolutely
0: i think that we've there's the evg um where there's been a fair amount of discussion on it and uh that's a pretty good example of of where things can be pushed out within the profession and we obviously do the same as beaver within our within our e-news, which only goes on within the profession, but that's not really an opportunity for debate and discussion. Um, and on the EVG, I know that you you put your report out um, as soon as it was you were able to publicly, so that, that got a good audience. We pushed it out to, to our members of our e-news and, and also the BEF presented their um, their response. Um, but I think... Uh, we as Beaver have had a bit of flack for not saying more or not doing more more quickly. And it's it's a challenge for us. And I think a bit like Hugh was saying earlier, we felt that if there was nothing new to say, there was no value in repeating what you, Richard, had put out and what uh, had been put out by the BEF in terms of comp- competition advice. But, but perhaps we should be doing things a little bit differently. What do you think, Hugh?
1: Yeah, well, I just, I think, For ourselves at Lippock and also for for Beaver, I I wonder whether the time has come that the expectation of information being fluid is so fast and so the expectation is so high that maybe we are in a position now where we should be making more frequent statements, even if they are the same statement being repeated and and making no excuse for that and just saying, you know, as far as we are concerned, the situation hasn't changed in the last 24 hours. And I do think that offers some reassurance to Again, our membership on the public. I think you know looking back, maybe we would have put out a few more a few more statements, you know as a hospital, just just keeping people informed. but but sort of, as Richard said, sort of we, we ha- our original tack was to only say something when there was something worth saying and when it was new. and, um, and I just don't know whether it's just in an evolving world whether repeating ourselves might be necessary.
0: And Richard, that's not something that the AHT does, is it? I think you were very good at sort of making a very clear statement and then, and then not not feeling the need to say anything until there is something new to say. Would you do you think we're in a changing time and we need to alter how we do
2: things? Um, I I, I think we are. Um, I I'm not sure. Social media has its place but it also presents immense challenges and Hugh and his colleagues would have had exactly this you know with somebody on the manning the phones that that's that's impressive Um, but often it's oh I've heard a rumor about or you know I had one this evening and I'm in no position to um, confirm or deny you know there may be some truth to the rumor but I have nothing you know to hand to say yes we've made that diagnosis and we can confirm it you know, it's, and as I had to point out to somebody today, you know, we're we're not necessarily the only laboratory uh, that would would diagnose these things. Um, So you're trying to find a, tread a fine line between uh, not making yourself look too silly, but equally, you know, trying to keep people assured that as far as we're concerned, you know, we haven't seen these secondary cases or whatever the you know the concern is yeah
0: so so what what next what's um i mean this this podcast will go out next monday what what next um in terms of your involvement in this process richard
2: well we've um we've 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 processed and now reported those sort of first sets of results so we have a much better understanding of what's likely to have been going on and where and I think that's as positive as it can be at this stage. Um, obviously, the clinical monitoring on the site will continue. So the vets on the ground will react to anything that, that, they're, made, uh, you know, that they're made aware of. And then it will be another round of testing. And we, we hope that that will confirm that you know, this infection has effectively burned itself out in the site where it's been, in the one part of the site where, where it clearly has been active up, up till now.
0: Great. And I, this this case was obviously different because of the premises that it was in, but but we should remind ourselves that it it's not unusual to have a case or two appear
2: over the year of of neurologically HV, is it? No, absolutely right. And um, you know we sometimes think about you know racing and the way that it um, it, it, it supports what what we do in particular. And I'll just acknowledge acknowledge that. But you know they were affected with a race yard in North Yorkshire back in. Two thousand and seventeen, very similar, nearly probably double the number of animals in potentially involved there, and um, you know they they got through that in a matter of a, a few weeks by being sensible, heeding the advice, doing the tests, and and getting through it.
0: Great, great. Well, fingers crossed that we um we continue heading in the right direction. Richard, thank you very much for for filling us in f- from the coalface, and Hugh, thanks for your input too. No thanks problem. both. Thank you. Thank you. So, Richard, thank you for staying on. Um, I think you haven't followed the typical path, I suspect, of, and possibly not the path that you imagined you would do. But when did you first think that you wanted to be a vet?
2: Um, it was when I was a schoolboy, back in the other century, <laughs> uh, millennium, if you like. Um, I was with a group of school. Uh, peers and uh, we were all doing biology at A-level and even before that uh, a lot of potential medics and dentists and I really just fancied the idea of being a vet. Um, it was going to be forensic science all the veterinary profession and I guess it was cemented when I saw practice as a schoolboy uh in, in uh, Yorkshire and um, sort of the whole mix of what practice had to offer and thought that would be the life but it's not the way it panned out but
0: (laughs) so so were you brought up uh in in an environment where there were horses where there were animals or
2: uh no not not horses we had uh we had a series of motley um uh dogs at at home mainly um that was the that were our main animal that goldfish and um (laughs) uh, but no the equine interest only came really well i was at uh, university at, at liverpool with the the crowd of um, you know um, senior staff that we had at the time, it was starting to foster quite a few people. I think in in the ways of uh, equine so you would
0: have, yeah, so you would have been there in the sort of Liverpool's heyday of big big eight coin names, would you?
2: Uh, possibly. Um, I was at Liverpool between eighty six and ninety one. Um, certainly benefited from you know the likes of Barry Edwards and Derek Nottenbelt. Uh, Stephen May was there at that time. John Cox, uh, young Christopher Proudman was coming through the ranks at that time. And, um, yeah, we, uh, you know, it it was a stimulating environment. And certainly, um, I mean, I half toyed with the idea of a PhD straight afterwards, but really needed to get practice into my veins and decide whether that was going to work. Um, And mixed practice with an equine bent was where I ended up.
0: So where was that? Where did you go after Liverpool?
2: Uh, I was in uh, Herefordshire, South Shropshire, lovely part of the world, very nice, um, tr- very traditional mixed practice, but the boss, um, John Horlock, was very good to me, he liked uh, the equine work, I, the other people in the practice weren't so keen, so it was, uh, a, you know, a good good place to go and cut your teeth on, on equine practice, as well as seeing other, you know, small animal and um, farm, farm practice as well, so...
0: And at that stage, were you still seeing yourself as a as a general practitioner or an equine practitioner into the future?
2: Yeah, I was. Yeah, very much a, a I guess a mixed practitioner with a, with an equine bent. But what became apparent was only in practice, you know, just shy of two and a half years, and um, it 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 started to you know you could you could see the the sameness of it coming around seasonally and what have you, and you start to see your colleagues your peers you know moving jobs and it was a little bit like an infectious disease it went round the group and uh and because that practice had actually been very good to me and you know I didn't think that just moving practice for the sake of it was necessarily the right thing to do and I happened to see an advert for a, a job at the Animal Health Trust working uh under James Wood and Jenny Mumford and and with an epidemiology type of slant to it and it just sounded really stimulating the eva outbreak at that time was being was in the headlines and they were helping with that and it it just sounded really really interesting and i applied and probably the only guy to apply and happened to get the job so
0: (laughs) so what was that job at the time
2: uh it was it was basically a a veterinary surgeon job in the in the center for preventive medicine we kind of still have the same role now um looking after the Pony herd that we have at the Animal Health Trust, um, getting involved in research. And James had a project um, studying infectious causes of respiratory disease, so it involved scoping a number of racehorses around the country, uh, taking tracheal washes, and helping with uh, with his PhD studies. So it was, you know, it was, it was broad and and uh, and and provided a lot of interest.
0: And and never been able to escape that that new that corner of Newmarket.
2: I know it's frightening, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, um, but it's been it's been good to me, you know. My uh, yeah, I had the opportunity to do a master's and a and a PhD and a fellowship at the Royal College, um, and really just develop that that interest in uh, population health, applied predominantly to to the horse, um, and and infectious disease and and, and prevention. It was a, a kind of it's always been a logical e- extension of each step really
0: so what was that? were there what are the big milestones during during that period you talked about your your masters and your phd but were there sort of key key things that stand out along the way
2: um what in terms of disease do you mean or uh, well or, or anything i suppose career, really yeah. either, either career or or disease or both yeah um i was very lucky to be involved in some of the early Sort of observations on on the carrier state for strangles, and you know we 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 worked on that a little bit, and that's led down the whole sort of strangles epidemiology and control route, which you know sees the the use of the blood test alongside other other investigations to um, you know uh, get get rid of silent carriers out out of the population. That's that's been an interesting challenge what was revealing there was you you write a paper in 97 but it doesn't get accepted as a concept by the profession for probably you know getting on a decade it's science can be quite slow at times to be adopted and translated so that that, that's been interesting um and then i guess the outbreak investigations and trying to make a you know a difference in a quite a you know, an, an, an acute and, and reactive type of stage. And that's sometimes joke that seeing outbreaks on the other side of the world is where where, where it's best done. <laughs> and Australia in 2007 was, was interesting. Um, largest <laughs> outbreak of influenza, um, you know, since the pandemic in 1963. was yeah. was interesting to watch from afar, let's put it that way.
0: <laughs> you talked about science being slow in some instances, but presumably other instances like like the flu outbreak last year you were you were expected to be on call immediately making decisions within, within very short spaces of time that must have been a pretty exhausting but pretty exhilarating period of time wasn't
2: it yeah it was yeah it was you kind of look back with it slightly more fondly perhaps than than you did at the time but no it was it was kind of you know we'd had lots of experience not quite on the same scale or level um Building up, you know, over over the twenty odd years that have been there, and 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 that all came came to the fore really. So yeah, it was it was interesting. You were working closely with uh, you know stakeholders, particularly the, the BHA and British Racing, because you're presented suddenly with the challenge that the decision's been made to take stock, stop racing for the first time in forty years due to an equine virus, at least. And then get it going again with a degree of confidence, knowing that uh, there's rather a large race meeting coming up um, in the, in the form of the Cheltenham Festival yeah, yeah. that that really you know needs to go needs to go ahead. So yeah, and
0: it strikes me that 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 point in time there were there were plenty of armchair experts sitting around, and and I imagine that you copped a. Fair amount of criticism. Um, it must have been quite a challenge to be doing all that in the face of something which was developing, and therefore you had a very strong clinical input. But I imagine there was a lot of pressure coming on from the commercial side of things, as you just mentioned.
2: Yeah, there was. But I, th- I think the beauty of it was that the you know the BHA has for a long time had a veterinary committee. That brings in um experience and expertise from a range of you know veterinary advisors for different parts of the industry and and it very much works collectively and achieves a consensus and certainly under you know david sykes um you know he 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 runs a very democratic uh, committee and, and we all have uh, an input and, and, you know, we reach a consensus. So it wasn't just me making decisions. I was providing advice and then that would get, get duly considered. And And there were pretty much almost daily veterinary conference calls, video conference calls, you know, at the end of each day to assess what the situation was and what, what the position was. So that 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 was, I think, worked very well. Um, and And yes, it helped us, if you like, cop the flack but you know our crystal ball obviously wasn't as good as some other people's and and, and we had to do the the legwork to to give assurances and and actually what was very reassuring David was the you know actually those those voices weren't as loud as perhaps they would and, and the whole racing industry did pull together very well and 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 got through it and you know it could have been yeah. could have been different
0: Certainly from my perspective, I th- I think even with the benefit of hindsight it, it I think it was handled pretty well across the board. Um it felt like it was it felt like people were in control, which was um which was was good from, from the industry's perspective, I think. Oh, very kind of um, you say so. <laughs> I'll have the drink later. Um the, uh, so would the would the teenage Richard have had any any idea that in a few years' time he would have been up in front of the TV cameras making decisions or imp- having significant input in decisions that were
2: affecting multi-million-pound
0: industries? Ooh, sounds quite quite exciting when you
2: put it like that. Um, almost certainly not. <laughs> no, um, it's it. You know, it's been an evolution, and, and and just obviously, as probably all our careers are, just a set of uh, forks in the road, and you just take one as you go and. I think once I came to Newmarket and started to settle into the job and being so close to racing and and obviously more senior colleagues sort of led led the way and and I've just kind of stood there <laughs> I've managed to be you know stay standing at the HT whilst um you know others have moved on so no it's it's been it's been very enjoyable and I you know I wouldn't have done anything differently I've got to say
0: Well, that's possibly a really good point to to wrap it up then. Uh, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you very much for talking to us about EHV earlier on, but also thank you for giving us a little bit of insight onto how you got to where you are. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, David.